Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. Today's scripture reading is 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. So real quickly, want to give you some good news. Um, we have some who have relatives that live down in Florida. And of course, Hurricane Ian came through. But Derek told me that his brother Dexter is well and fine. Uh, uh, Tammy Salcedo, who is, where's Judy Turner? She's somewhere. Oh, there she is. Uh, Judy Turner's daughter and, and her family, they are fine. And I talked to Brian Shelby, who has, or to Janelle, Brian's wife, who has some relatives down there, and they are all well too. So if, if anyone has any other relatives in the area, um, uh, you know, let us know. We're glad to know that the ones that we do know that they are well and fine. So with that, we can definitely say God is good. All, yeah, let's try that again. Okay. I throw you off when I don't say it right off. huh? God is good. Thank you all the time. On January 3rd of this year, Stephanie and I took our daughter to the National Guard Armory here in Murray. She left from there with uh, the National Guard. She's a military police officer, and they went from there to another base for about a month to do some training, then they went from there to Europe another month to do some training, and finally went to their station. And by the grace of God, next month, she's supposed to be home. So if I seem a little giddy, or if I seem a little annoying about my daughter and my family, I, I'm sure you'll, you'll take it in good, good humor. Um, you know, I think about that from the day she left, it seemed like it was going to be an eternity before she came home. So we were planning, we were doing things. But I'm very grateful for technology because we have been able to text with her every day. We've been, the, the, the FaceTime videos, she could call and, and we could talk. And it, it made me really grateful for technology. I know a lot of people talk about how bad it is. But I've been grateful for it because I, I was telling Stephanie and others, I said, I can't imagine what it was like in, in, in earlier decades without those mediums where you'd have to write a letter and mail it off and maybe in a month or so you, you'd get one back or something like that. You know, to be able to see her face and hear her voice has kept me sane, uh, for the lack of a better term. But family's very important. Recently, not long ago, I made an observation. Our sister... Uh, Faye Hopkins, who went to be with the Lord a few weeks ago. The observation I made at her funeral was this, that when I went and visited her in her home, in her final days, right next to her was her husband, Gary. They'd been married just for 58 years. And also 
her sons. In that critical time of life, it wasn't her GPA that was there. It wasn't her degree, her career, or any money or success. It was her sons and her husband. And at the funeral, it was listed on the obituary that she was a homemaker. Today, I fear that society says that's not an accomplishment. But that women, and especially in these days, you need to, you need to prove yourself economically. You need to have a, a, a billet sheet or a, a resume a mile long. You've got to have all these accolades. But let me tell you something. I think her accomplishment in raising two sons alongside her husband and the fact that they were there next to her, attending to her needs, attending to their father, that is a great accomplishment. Because family's there when it matters most. And sometimes it's, it's easy for us to forget the place that the church is supposed to stand in our lives. And one of the places that uh, is pointed out several times in this book is that it's the church is a household. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, I'm writing you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Now you read all throughout 1 Timothy and you're going to see household imagery along the way. And, and here in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we have just that. Do not rebuke an old man, an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. There it is. Brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, children. That, that's, that's how we're supposed to be. And you, you, you look at our earthly families, right? Some of us, not everybody, but some of us, our church family is more of a family to us than our blood kin, right? Uh, church family can be very supportive, can be there when you're in your darkest hours. And, and we have some, I would call them our silent servants, they're the people that you don't hear much about, but they are going around without any attention, without any notoriety, without anyone drawing attention to what they're doing, and they are serving their brothers and sisters. They will go and sit with a sick one so that, you know, the, the, the parent or the spouse can go and run some errands. Uh, they will take people to and from doctor's appointments. There are a lot of things that go on in this congregation that people just don't know about. And it's because of this family relationship where people have grown close to one another and care genuinely for each other. And, and that's how the church is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a family. When you and I come to faith in Christ, we get three things. Are you ready? Number one, we get a father, a heavenly Father, my favorite story in all scripture, the parable of the prodigal son. And, and I'll tell you why I love that story. I feel like at times when I was younger, I was that prodigal son. And what I loved is when the son comes back home, the father's there waiting. I mean, maybe he'd been doing this for a while, just standing out in the field, looking in the direction that his son had gone off to. 
knowing this probably wasn't a good idea to give him his inheritance because, you know, his character indicates he's not going to be a good boy. But he's my son, I love him. So the father let him go. And so he goes into this land and, and he squanders his money. And as a faithful Jewish little boy, he finds himself in the pig pen. He would have gladly eaten what the pigs had. That is how degraded he was. And then it came to his mind about the servants in his father's house. He said, well, they have clothes. They have plenty to eat. They're well provided for. So I'm going to go back and, you know, if, if I will just become as a servant in my father's house, life won't be that bad. So he goes. And as he goes, the father is there waiting and the father sees him from the distance and the father runs to his son. Now think about if it was you or me and it was our daddy. Now, my daddy probably wouldn't have been waiting on me to come back. And, and if I did, I would probably have gotten a good chewing. Y'all know what that means, don't you? A good chewing? Okay. Just make sure we're on the same page. And I think, well, what if I as a father, if it were my children, right? The father doesn't act in any way. And, and I love the way Bob Palmer, when he, in our summer youth series, uh, he made the observation that really it's the parable of the prodigal father because he didn't behave like all fathers would have ever behaved if their sons had been that unfaithful. But when we come to faith in Christ, we get a father, a father who loves us, who cares for us, who wants what's best for us. The second thing we get is we get forgiveness. Forgiveness. It doesn't sound that sweet until you've done something so bad that you really need it. And I think that's why a lot of people aren't Christians. They say, I'm a good person. I'm a good moral person. I, I, I'm fair in every dealing that I have. I, I don't do people wrong. You know, I'm honest in all my taxes and, and you know, I help those who need help. I, I, I'm a good person. So I, I, just, I just don't see the need. And, and, and I've had these conversations with people. Well, to, to a degree, I might agree with you. But you've got one sin that you can't see, and it's pride. Because you think you're good enough. That isn't the story that we know. The story that we know is that humanity is very, very flawed. And we are a part of it. We may not be as bad as others. But see, there's the fault. We like to look at one another and I go, well, you know, compared to her, compared to him, let me tell you what, I'm not that bad. Right? That's an easy way to do it. But let me remind you of a couple of stories from the Bible. One is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees this glorious vision of God in his throne room. And, and the way that it reads, the train of his robe filled the entire temple. And these fiery angels, seraphim, they each had several sets of wings and they would cover their feet with some cover their, the, the face of the Lord with others and they would fly around and they were crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, after that, Isaiah didn't go, man, I'm glad I'm not like all them bad people on earth. Let me tell you something. I'm a pretty good guy. I love the Lord. I worship the Lord. I'm doing the best I can. And I'm living in an age when people are bad. That's not how he replied. He responded by saying, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. 
He didn't compare himself to others, but when he was faced with the holiness of God, he realized just how bad he was. That was the first thing that came to his mind. Now, if we do the comparison game of us to one another, trust me, we can make ourselves look better than a lot of people. But when we stand before the holiness of God, we're brought to the realization that, you know, when I look at the grandeur of my God and how great and holy and mighty and awesome He is, I'm not that good. Another example, we studied it in our Sunday school class a few weeks ago when Jesus was with Peter, James, and John, and they had been fishing all night, hadn't caught a thing. So Jesus gets in the boat and He says, let's cast out because the crowds were pressing in. And as they get out to the water, Jesus tells Peter, He says, he says lay down your nets. Now He's telling this to a professional fisherman who had been at it all night and had no luck. Peter said, well, we fished all night and we hadn't caught anything. But then he says, but at your word, we'll put down our nets. And he puts down his net. And they begin to pull. And they need help pulling because it's so heavy, full of fish. And then they begin filling their boats with the fish so much that the, the, the boats are starting to sink. And in that moment, Peter isn't moved to just say, oh, look, we got a great catch. That's how fishermen do it, isn't it? We like to hold it, take that hook out, hold that thing up and say, hey, get a picture. Nobody's going to believe this. But when Peter realizes who he's standing before and what has just happened, he bows before the Lord and he says, go away from me for I am a sinful man. The holiness of God confronting the frailty of humanity. And so because that is our truths, when we get that Father, He gives us forgiveness because we need it. But the third thing we get when we come to faith in Christ is we get a family. We get a family. We get brothers and sisters. We get mothers and fathers. And we can be as mothers and fathers to others. I was about 16 years old and I was always the last to leave and the first to get home. Mama worked in Nashville. Daddy just worked long hours. And I got home one afternoon and uh, because I was always the last to leave, you know, my job to make sure the door's locked and shut. Now, I've probably told you this story before. But, you know, it's a classic, so I'm going to tell it again. But I'm walking up the porch, and I notice that the door is, it's not fully shut. And as I'm walking, I'm thinking, I, I know I shut that door this morning. And so I, I grabbed the knob, and it was locked. And I'm like, well, I locked it, Lee. But I opened the door, and there's stuff strewn everywhere. Someone had broken into our house and had robbed it, ransacked it. And there's stuff, like, I'm running, I, I noticed this. And I'm running in and I'm looking and someone was like, well, how did you know if no one was in there? I, I didn't think about it. I just ran in. I'm like, what has happened? And I run and down the hall were, were gun racks where daddy had his shotguns and rifle. Every one of them's gone. So I run into my bedroom because I had a 12 gauge that my great grandfather gave me. It was his one from when he was younger. Gone. I ran 
to get the phone and I picked up the phone in the living room to call and it was y'all know what that sound is right there's a generation out here who doesn't know what that means and that's something so the phone wasn't working so I hopped in my truck and I drove up into Ridgetop maybe a couple miles from the house and I go to the grocery store where I was a little bag boy and I run in, I'm just sobbing, and, and you know, the, the owner's there. What's wrong? Someone has robbed us. I, I got to use the phone. Yeah, go ahead. So I call mom and dad, and I tell them, and, you know, daddy calls Uncle Bo, who's 100 yards down, and, of course, a policeman, and Uncle Bo goes through the whole house, you know, making sure no one's there, and I get back, and daddy gets there, and then mama gets there, and, of course, mama just begins sobbing and crying. So we're like, okay, we got to start picking stuff up. So we start picking stuff up. And while we're picking stuff up, one, two, three, maybe four or five cars pull in. It was our church family. Someone had told them what had happened. And so one of them came with his tools and some lumber in case any repairs needed to be made. Another one came and they had a big ordering of Kentucky Fried Chicken. They came and they helped us. They were there. The ladies went with mom and they went and took care of putting back uh, her clothing and, and things. And the men are making repairs, doing what they can, picking up the big stuff and all that. What started out as a horrible evening really became a blessing. They were there. Our family was there. Then several years later, in about 2002, Graham passed away. She'd had multiple sclerosis for years. And living with that, I've always admired her because if anybody could ever be sour about life, I would think it was a woman who had gone from good health, declining, to partial blindness, to uh, uh, hindered mobility, eventually to being bedridden and totally blind and having to have your husband care for you. And granddaddy did. He cared for her. He would hold a bottle of Insure and he would take, in her late, last days, he would take a little, the little medicine dropper that we use to give our children that nasty medicine that they hate, and he would feed her a can of Insure a day. But when she passed, it was on a Friday evening, if I remember correctly. So in Tennessee at the time, you could not open or close a grave on a Sunday. So we had all day Saturday and all day Sunday of a viewing, and then Monday we had the funeral. And I'll tell you what, there was so much food, it could have fed everybody in this congregation, but it was only meant for about 20 to 30 of us. And constantly, there was the presence of our church family. This was long before I was a preacher, mind you. But they were there. The greatest example I can give you of a church family, and this is Stephanie's uh, big story, more so, it, it's mine as well, but it's more so hers. We had just started down at New Concord in July, I guess it was, of 2009. Does that sound about right? Yeah. 
And in the fall, Stephanie, one Wednesday night, she was like, boy, I just don't feel great. I think I've got a stomach bug. Okay, fine. So I went on work and came home and any better? No, I'm still not. You taking anything? Yeah, I took Pepto. Okay, all right. Well, I got to go over for church. It's Wednesday night, right? So I go over for church and I come back and how you doing? Feeling any better? No, I'm feeling not really. She was like, I feel like my belly's uh, distended. Is that right? Distended, extended, I don't know, swollen. Let's go with that, okay? So I said, lift your shirt. And so I, I put my hand against it, and man, it was hot. It was like touching a furnace. And I said, uh, we got to go to the ER. Something ain't right. And she's like, no, I'll be, yeah. See, y'all say men are stubborn? <laughs> Stephanie, y'all like, no, I'll be fine. No, her appendix was about to rupture. That's what it was. But Charles and Mariana Stubblefield came to the house and they stayed there while Bree and Cole were sleeping. And then we get to the hospital and we're there and I'm, I'm ready to, uh, you know, hurt somebody because they're moving slower than molasses downhill on ice. And Betty and Squirrel Garen show up and they're there with me. I was freaked out. I didn't know what was going on. And so, okay, they figure out it's the appendix. Stephanie says, go home. I'll be fine. Okay. So I went home, maybe slept four hours, got up, went back up there for the surgery. And when I walked in the waiting room, several couples and people from New Concord had beat me there. Family. Have I made the point? Okay. Well, let's move on. If your Bible's open to 1 Timothy chapter 5, we'll read verses 3 through 16 about those who are widows. Honor widows who are really widows, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home, to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. And these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works. If she's brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the, the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. But refuse the younger widows, for when they've begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry, bear, bear children, manage the house, and give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. Now, you may remember back in chapter 2, there was the discussion of some of the women that were there uh, that had apparently given way to some of the false teachers among them. And so they were, they were teaching in the church, usurping roles of authority, of leadership, and they were dressing as if they were going to a fashion show when they went to the assembly. 
Some of them may have been young and widows, and they may have been living off of the church's generosity uh, and caring for widows. And so in an, in an effort to straighten that out, you know, this is, this is a part of what Paul says to do. Do these things, and, and those who are truly widows, let them be given help by the church. But I love the part, if, 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 if someone doesn't care for those of their own household, they are worse than an unbeliever, for they have denied the faith. The commandment, honor thy father and mother, is often used in the Gospels, not to children, little small ones, but to adults. Go back and read that and note the audience that Jesus is citing that to, because it's always adult religious leaders who have aged parents. In Mark chapter 7, Matthew 15, the same story is told, and the Pharisees and the scribes, they would take the funds that they would use to care for their parents in their age, and they would call it Corban, which meant given to God. And so they would say, well, this money is Corban, it's given to God, so I can't use it on you. But anything God-related, they could spend it on. They had, they had made a loophole. And Jesus pointed this out. He says, you know, you live by the traditions of man, and in doing so, you subvert the commandments of God. For the the law says, honor thy father and mother, but you say that which I have gained that I would give to you is Corban, that is given to God. So they created their own little loophole to avoid doing the very thing that God and the law commanded them to do. And let me tell you something, that is not a commandment that expires. Okay, you're 18, so what? I'm still your daddy. I'm not going to run your life like I did, but I'm still your father. Those of you that are grandparents even, I have heard time and again the statement made, once you become a parent, you never stop. And in some, in many cases, that's true. That is true. You can do the best you can and you try to be there to be supportive, to provide counsel. But if there are widows in the family, it falls to the family to take care of them first. Now, we have a lot of safety nets today that they didn't have then. We, we have Social Security. We have uh, investments, retirements, pensions, all these different things so that, you know, this isn't something that the church has to face and deal with as much as what it did then. But it's still a good thing to look after the widows of the church. And we have many widows and widowers in this congregation and I hope, that, uh, I hope that your families do a good job looking after you. And I hope the church does a good job of loving you as well. So you have behaving like a family. You have caring for the widows and now honoring the elders. Not elders as in older people, but elders as in the elders, the bishops, the overseers, the pastors. Verse, verses 17 through 20. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may 
also fear. So we notice a couple things here. First of all, there are some elders who labor both in word and doctrine, and, and they were to be compensated. Now, there's this, there's this uh, tradition that a lot of churches of Christ have that, you know, preachers are compensated, elders not so much. But I know several preachers that are also elders at the congregations where they serve. Now, I know someone's going to say, well, I just don't think any man should be on, you know, should be an elder and a preacher at the same time because he can, you know. I'm like, look, first of all, he's not the only one. Secondly, if you can't trust him to be both at the same time, you can't trust him to be either one. Third, Scripture has a different view. For these elders, those who labored in, uh, uh, in, in word and doctrine, they were to be given double honor. And honor could be, it could be honor such as esteem highly. It could also be compensation. That word translated honor was often used as compensation. When you read the following verses, don't muzzle the ox while it treads the grain. The laborer is worthy of his wages. That points to some kind of compensation. But not only are they to be given that double honor, we got to remember that elders are not untouchables. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except for on the basis of two or three witnesses. And those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Our elders, our overseers, our pastors are here to do just that. They're, 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 they're supposed to help us in our walk with Christ. So often they have to deal with things that really deter from the shepherding aspect of their jobs. And you're going to have people tell you, I was done this way by the church. Usually when they say that, they mean the elders. And everybody gets a bad taste about the elders because of what a person said. But here's the thing. The elders will never respond to those accusations because they believe in keeping confidence in the people that they meet with and the, that they try to help. So before you get upset because of what one person said, remember there's always another side to the story and we may never know it. That doesn't mean that our elders are perfect. God knows that's true of them and us as well. None of us are perfect. But hopefully we give them the proper esteem for what they do. But I would also say elders should also shepherd elders. That's very important. Okay, the final verses of chapter 5. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing without partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily. Let, let me point out, I don't think he's talking about socking somebody in the jaw. Uh, it was often the custom when someone became an elder or a deacon or whatever that they would lay their hands on. Uh, that's what the word ordain means. It means to lay the hands on. So he's probably saying don't put anyone as an elder or a deacon hastily. Uh, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. One of the most infamous stories in Scripture occurs early on in Genesis. It's the story of Cain and Abel, two brothers. They both brought offerings to the Lord, and God regarded 
Abel's, but he didn't regard Cain's. Now, there's a lot of debate as to why that is. Um, you know, Cain brought vegetables. Abel brought, uh, 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 you know, from his flock. So it could be that Cain brought something he thought that God would, would, would want when he was supposed to bring something from the flock. That, that's possible. We also note that uh, Abel brought the first fruits of his flock. And that is a commandment we later see in the law. Bring the first fruits. The first of what you get, bring and offer to God. Because it's God who prospers you. It's God who blesses you in your labor. So God regarded Abel's, but he didn't regard Cain's. Cain became upset with his brother over this. He became envious. He became jealous. And then they're out and Cain kills his brother. And then he goes on like nothing ever happened. So God shows up and he asks Cain, he says, where's your brother? And like the smart aleck that he was, Cain replied, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. We are our brother's keeper. That is, we're supposed to care about them. We're, not, we're supposed to help them, aid them, and sometimes even rebuke. If we truly care about people, if you truly care about me, if I'm doing something that you know Scripture says is wrong, it is unloving to not come to me and try and straighten it out. Now, you can do the loving thing and come to me and tell me, and I can repent, and I can ask for forgiveness, and we can both move forward. Or I can choose to say, thank you for your concern. I disagree and go my own way. But you will have done what you should have done. Is it easy? No, nobody likes to do that. But if you truly care, and you truly love the brethren, you will. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor given preference to one another. The last night he spent on this earth, before his crucifixion, Jesus has a meal with his disciples. And upon entering the house, he girds himself with a towel and he gets a basin. And he aims to wash 24 dirty feet. If someone came to you that knew and said, this will be your last night on earth. There are so many things that we would all do, but washing dirty feet probably wouldn't be one of them. Not only that, Jesus would wash the dirty feet of the one that he would know would betray him, leading to the horrendous suffering and death that he faced on this earth. But he still washed his feet. And he says... 
I'm leaving you an example. And the example is to serve. The greatest among you will be your servant, he said. Serve one another. The Lord who created the heavens and the earth, getting down on his knees with a basin and, and, and almost in a posture of bowing before creation and, and washing creation. It seems so out of order, but that's who Jesus was and that's who he is. And that's who we are called to be like. I would not be serving as a friend or serving very well if I didn't tell you about the good news. Jesus Christ, and I believe this, you know, my earthly family I love dearly, but in my earthly family, I've told you this, there has been alcoholism, there's been substance abuse, there's been domestic violence, there's been divorce, there's been a whole litany of things. And when I was younger, the one thing that I noticed was missing in all of those circumstances was the willingness, not just to believe in God, but to fully surrender the will to God and let him steer the ship. Now, I don't say that in judgment of our relatives. I say that by way of observation. And, and I have tried, along with my wife, we have tried to change that mindset. And I'll tell you this. I don't know what my life would look like without God in it. I'd be scared to, I'd be scared to make a wager. But I believe in the good news, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose the third day. And that resurrection, that's the difference maker. Because by raising from the dead, he's defeated death. He's defeated sin. He's ascended to the right hand of God where he makes intercession for us. All you have to do is trust him. That's what faith is. It's trusting. Taking myself and putting it in God's hands. And a couple ways that I do that is confession, baptism, repentance. If you've never taken the initial steps, that's what scripture says you have to do. That's the grace extended. And you know what? Because grace is a gift, all you have to do is accept it. And God says, here are the terms of acceptance. So if you've not yet obeyed the gospel, please do so. And if you wish to do so publicly before this assembly, you can come to the front as we stand and as we sing.